Welcome to the Race Haven Radio Show and Podcast, your source for solutions-focused dialogue about race in America, with your host, Scott Speed. This is Solutions-Focused Dialogue about Race Relations in America. My name is Dr. Scott Speed, and I am the facilitator of the dialogue. This is episode 20 of Race Haven, and I'm excited today because this is a very special episode. I have as a guest uh, for a very exclusive interview, my grandmother, Miss Ella Breedlove Speed. We affectionately call her Mother. Let's bring her on and say hello. One second here. Let's see. Hello, Mother. Can you hear me okay? Yes. How are you doing today? Doing good. Great, great. I really appreciate you joining me on the show today. I'm just going to take care of a few things, and then I'm going to bring you back on to start the interview, okay? Okay. All right, Race Haven listeners. So, I'm excited to introduce you to my grandmother today, uh, Miss Ella Breedlove Speed, and I'll be calling her mother from here on out uh, for a special interview about her perspective on race relations in America through the decades since her birth in 1920. Yes, you heard me right, 1920. My grandmother is 95 years old. She'll be 96 next month. What a blessing we have to continue to have her wisdom in our lives. And for those of you who've listened to the show, you know that I am a lover of history and I love historical perspective. And today I'm going to allow you guys to get some insight into some of the questions that I asked my grandmother to get historical perspective on, you know, her experience growing up in the South. Uh, my grandmother was born and raised in Apalachicola, Florida, which is on the panhandle of Florida in between Tallahassee and Panama City, right on the Gulf of Mexico. Mexico. She, was, uh, married to, she married my grandfather, Willie Lee Speed, in 1942, and the two of them raised four children, including my father, Allison Speed. But before we start the interview, I'd like, I'd like to tell you, our listeners, about how you can become a patron of the show. You see, my goal is to have an entirely user-supported show free of advertisements. So I created a Patreon page, which is an online platform where our listeners can earn cool perks like a custom Race Haven t-shirt by supporting the ongoing improvement and quality of this show for as little as $1 a month. Please visit racehavenpodcast.com and click on Become a Patron to see all the details. So with that being said, let's jump into our interview with our special guest, Mother. Mother, are you ready? Yes. Great. Okay, so Mother, Mother and I had a few moments uh, before the call where I shared with her some of the things that we're going to talk about. And I'm really excited for you guys to hear, uh, again, just her historical perspective. Because a lot of times we read things in the history books, 
And, you know, there's a lot of skepticism about who's writing that history, or we may read a newspaper article or a research paper and as such. And a lot of times it's not a first party uh, resource, the person who actually lived it. And right now we're going to hear from someone who's lived it. And I think we are so fortunate to have this opportunity. And I want to thank Lori, um, one of our Race Haven supporters in our Facebook group and one of our listeners from Utah. Uh, for making a suggestion because yesterday was my birthday and I shared with her that my grandmother called me on my birthday and how special that made me feel to hear her tell me that I'm blessed to see another birthday. And, you know, to hear that from someone who's seen 95 birthdays was just such a gift. And Lori made a suggestion and asked if we could, if I could interview uh, my grandmother on the podcast. And I thought that would be a great idea so I gave my grandmother a call and I asked her if she'd be open to it. And she said, sure. So once again, thank you so much, mother, for agreeing to do this. And let's jump right into it. And I wanted to first start out with asking you, in the 1920s, when you were a child, um, you know, there were still individuals alive who, were, who had lived through slavery. And I wanted to know, in the 1920s, did you know any people who had lived through with the emancipation of slavery uh, in your community? Yes. What was that I like as a, chi- as a child? Big pardon? I said, what was that like as a child? And you're kind of low, Mother. If you can make sure you're speaking right into the telephone so we can hear you clearly. Okay. Well, as a child, all that we knew from the beginning of, of of my years, that we were segregated, that the whites lived on the one side of the highway, and the and the blacks on the other side. Like they lived on the north, and we lived on the south. So from that, we knew it was a difference. And of course, the things that they could enjoy, that we would like to have enjoyed, we couldn't do that because of the separation. So, okay. you see, that's one of the things. Even when I was six years old, when we started school, when I started school at six years old, they had bus buses carry the children to school, pick them up, then bring them home in the afternoon. But the blacks didn't, regardless of where we lived. If it was some of the blacks that lived out in the woods, that's what we called it, that lived so far out, they had to walk. They could ride the bus. So that showed us that it was a difference right there from the very beginning. So but, as a six-year-old, so as a six-year-old, you learned very early on while you were walking to school. Very, you saw very the, early. By you the saw the segregation. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, what did you know about slavery? What did you learn about slavery when you were a child? Well, I would hear about the older people. And my parents talking about it at six years old. So I've I've known 
something about it. And then later, as I began to read, I learned a lot. But my friends, I mean, my age group, we would talk about the difference and how we were treated. So we knew it from the very beginning. How did how did it make you feel? Uh, how did segregation make you feel? Well, Scott, at that at my age, I really didn't really didn't understand or know enough about it to feel bad. But as I grew older, that's when I began to learn about segregation. But in the beginning. It's I didn't think that much of it. So the the school bus took you to to one. I'm sorry, took the European American children to one school, while you walked to a different school because you didn't go to the same school, did you? Of course not. No, not the same school. We walked. We had to walk, but uh, and and the schools were so different. The whites had a a a beautiful, fabulous uh, building, school building. But we were over on the other side with a wooden with a wooden building. And of course, you know, it was nothing like the whites. Yes. Okay. Let me ask you this: because they were born different. Right. So, Mother, during that time, during the 1920s, the 1930s, and 1940s, the Ku Klux Klan, KKK, was very prevalent in terrorizing African-American communities. And there were the, the horrible human crime of lynching was very prevalent as well, unfortunately. Were there any things like that going on in Apalachicola, Florida? Well, we did well, maybe every once in a while, but I can't remember it like like how prevalent that it was in other areas. But you see, we will read about it and hear about it that is how bad it was going on. And so I think that that's what made the blacks fearful, even at that time. The the time we didn't experience some of that, but we knew about it. Because we were here, and it happened so close to, so close to us, and they and and that was before my time that they did it right here in Apalachicola, the killing and and the the lynching and all of those things. They it was done. It was done here. Wow. But at my time, the, the I, it was better. Okay, so by the time you area. were being raised, it was getting it was already better. Well, that's good to know. It was, it was yeah, from that time, like the Ku Klux Klan and all of those. It was better, mm-hmm. but it, but it was a horrible. I would read about it after I got older, and it was something horrible. Your father sent Speed and I a couple of uh, slavery books for Christmas one year, and I haven't finished that book yet. I will read just a certain portion of it, and it will just get so bad. 
to see how the blacks had to suffer and the things they had to go through that I would just put it aside. I put it in the library, and maybe later one day I might read a little more. But those are the things that I had to experience. And it was, and that book will show you pictures, pictures of what our folk parents had to go through. Right. So let me ask you this, Mother. Did were you when you were growing up as a child and as a teenager, were you taught to be fearful of European Americans? No. Maybe some children were. But no, we were never taught that because, you see, my father and mother, you during that time, they had gone through all of this that I'm talking about, and and they knew that to make us, to carry us through this, that we were supposed to stand up and drop, be fearful, and, and go through this because it was going to get better one day. So I was, I was never fearful. So the next question I want to ask was, did you have any friendships uh, and relationships with European Americans as a child? Were you allowed to play with them? Yes, yes, I had friends. Yes, well, I had friends. Well, that's good. So that means that, like you said, during your time, uh, things were getting better. Uh, than what yes, your parents went through. That's right. A so lot did you, better. Did you feel, when you were a teenager and a child, um, did you feel like in the 1940s, for example, uh, you were in your 20s. You were 20 years old in 1940, but yet it was still almost 20 years before the actual civil rights movement. So during that time in the 1940s, when you were, you were in your 20s and you were in your early 20s, you were married in 1942 and granddaddy was just about to go off to World War II. Did you think that race relations in America were bad? Did you, did you know at that time that segregation was bad or did you just think it was just yes, what it was and it didn't that, bother you? Yes, I knew at that time. You knew something wasn't right. That's right. I knew. Mm-hmm. In fact, I I believe at six years old I knew. Did you ever at that time? Did you ever think anything would change? Yeah, I knew it had to get better. That we okay. wouldn't have to go through life this way. Hmm. Okay. So what are some other things? So in addition to the bus, um, during segregation in 1940s, here you are, a young woman in your 20s. Are, is there anything else you noticed during that time that made you notice that you were different? European Americans had more privileges, more privileges than you and granddaddy and your children in the 1940s and the 1950s? Well, yes, because... Uh, I knew that when we would go to to the stores, even though I would be there before some of the whites, but they were always and they and and the people in the stores, you know, they were white. 
but they would always get all the wait on all the whites before they would get a baby. Then after that, they'll start waiting on the blacks. But the whites came first with them. Instead of, you know, like today, we, we'll stop them if, if they refuse to get a white. We let them know that I would let them know that I, I was here first. See, but during that time, you didn't say anything because that was just the norm. Right. So we always knew, yeah, of, of things like that, you know, you, you, you would know the difference. Hmm. They, they I understand. Like they always were supposed to come first. But you know what I think about it now, Scott? The blacks have come a long way. Long way. Yes. And we own our way. We own our way. Did you ever hold any resentment towards European Americans? Did you not? Did you dislike them or hate them because of the way that African Americans were, were treated when you were growing up? No, but I, I, a lot did, but I didn't. But I, I believe it was because of I was teaching. My mother and father taught us to not to feel that way. But you could so easily, and I understand some of the blacks the way they feel today. But you could, you could, because you could easily feel that way. But being taught from a child. From the beginning, see, and they got that in us, the not to feel that way. And that's the reason I feel the way I do today. But here's one thing I think think about just recently, seems like it's on my mind, that at one time the way that the blacks were treated, the White parents taught their children to be that way toward us. See, they were taught that because being born as a child, you, they would know the difference if, if the parents didn't teach them. But what the white parents refused to understand, see, all they knew was the, was the blacks and t- tell the children about the blacks and talk about them. But what the bad things that they said about the blacks, they didn't do it like the black parents. Parents, they didn't like the way we had to live, but they didn't talk, talk, tell it to us. They were always pleasant and talk about Mr. My mother used to wake on the beach with white people. She would always say Mr. and Mrs. and and taught that to us. Like, that's the reason why some of us feel the way we do about the white, because we were taught that they were nice people, see. But don't you know my parents get with those other black parents? Now, I imagine they had a lot to say. We didn't know it. What the whites made the mistake of talking about the blacks before their children, see, the terrible things they wanted to say about the black man, they did it. They did it right in the presence of their children. Now let me tell you. Now today, for one, for once a time, I told you about they on one side and we on the other. 
But you should see those white girls over here on our side just walking the street, picking up these black guys. And I, I believe that their parent is responsible because they talked about us so bad before those, their children that their children didn't know the difference. They came over here and get some of the, the worst blacks that even our, we would want our girls to be involved with them. But I believe that that's the, that's the, that's the reason is because of their teaching. They didn't, they didn't do like the black, black town. Right. Just get by themselves and told. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's, a, that's an interesting perspective, Mother. Let me ask you about uh, the 1960s, uh, the civil rights movement. So you were living this life and you were frustrated, and, but you just accepted it. But then came the civil rights movement. And one of the very first uh, things that got the national attention, even though there were always small grassroots um, you know, efforts going on, one of the larger efforts that initially got the attention of the country and the world was, and even before Dr. Martin Luther King came onto the scene, there was something called the Freedom Riders. And there were these um, Freedom Riders who came from all over the country, uh, young African-Americans and young European-American activists came to the South and they broke the segregation laws by riding on buses that they weren't supposed to. And they went to jail in masses over and over and they flooded the jails of Mississippi um, because they went down to make a point that these bus uh, busting segregation and busing laws just weren't fair. Did you hear about the Freedom Riders? Yes. Yes, I did. And, and, and what was your thoughts you know, during this time? Because I, I know that a lot of African-Americans, uh, based on my research, there were some there were some African-Americans in the African. There were some elders in the African-American community who felt like the Freedom Riders and the Civil Rights uh, Movement during that time, that they were starting trouble and they were coming down and making their way of life hard where everything was normal. And they, they just, you know, they adjusted to the norms of segregation. And they didn't want these children coming down and starting trouble. How did you feel during that time? Were you did you feel like they were starting trouble, or were you glad that they no, were? No, I was no. I didn't feel like I I felt like it was a help to us. That's a, no, I didn't feel like they were making trouble. I I felt like it was was a help, a help okay. to us to, to to help get us where we are today. So you were, in 1957, you were the same age that I am today. You were 37 years old. I'm 37 as of yesterday. And in 1957, you were 30. And that's around the time that uh, the Freedom Riders, uh, you know, movement started. In the late 50s, early 60s is when the Civil Rights Movement really picked up on a national stage. Uh, So then in the early 1960s, Dr. Martin Martin Luther King came onto the scene. And tell me about what was going through your mind in your late 30s during this time. You had little children, and here you're starting to see on the news more often that Dr. Martin Luther King and thousands of other civil rights leaders um, of all ethnicities, but primarily African Americans, were starting to descend on the South. Your home, uh, right right north of you in Alabama, a lot of it was going on. What were your thoughts during that time? Well, 
even though after hearing about it and reading about it, I just knew that just knowing that you're being free makes such a difference in your life. And just most hearing, and, you know, we talked about it a lot, but that we, me and my group, you know, in groups we had friends that we talked about and what was happening during that time. And I, we were really excited about it. It was getting better for us. That's great. Now, was there any tension in Apalachicola during that time between the adult African-Americans and the adult European-Americans during the Civil Rights Movement? Were there any tensions or protests in Apalachicola? Yes, but it was before, the, before uh, like it was more or less doing Orient, your uncles, uncles and aunt time, that they put, that they would go have sit-ins downtown, we call it downtown, you know. Yes. And, and at the restaurants. So Uncle O, which is my Uncle Orient yeah, for our listeners. Time. And my dad, during their time, they actually went downtown and and their their peers, they had uh sit-ins at the restaurants. Yeah, they had. But they're they're not the only one because I don't know if you know uh, Madeline uh, Steve's sister's daughter. They were in on it. They let them. But they they asked if they could do it. And, of course, we let them do it. So they went down and they went to the sitting down at the restaurants and ordering and it was it was something but it was, we lived through it and made were it you better. afraid were you afraid no no we weren't afraid Mm-mm. you weren't no. afraid they would we get beaten or put we in were jail so glad. we were glad our children was doing it we didn't we didn't tell them but you know them they just went. We gave them permission when they asked us if it was all right. We told them, yes, go on. And they did it. That and makes me proud to hear it. that. Yes, we let them do it. They went sitting in and sitting in. You see, that started here in Apalachicola, and look how it is today. That makes me really proud to hear that, Mother, that that my family members and their peers in that in little old Apalachicola, they took That's a stand right. and they did something That's and right. that you and the other elders in the community during that time encouraged them mm-hmm. and supported them. That's right. You told them, yeah, it's all right, do it. They did it too. <laughs> you know how they are. Were, were any of them put into jail or beaten or anything like that? I can't. I can't remember that. I don't. I don't okay. think so. Mm-hmm. So, mother, in 1968, you were 48 years old, and Dr. Martin Luther King had, you know, 19 um, in in the 1965, the Civil Rights Act uh, was passed, and I'm sure that was a joyous time. Um, it you was. know, and and how did you feel at that moment um, in 1965 when the Civil Rights uh, act was passed. 
Well, I I, I felt real good. You know, we cheered. <laughs> we were excited. We all felt we felt like we were uh, making progress. I'm sorry, that was 1964. Won't be long. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, it was actually 1964. So you were 44 years old, and you were cheering, and you were celebrating, and and thought that everything would, yes, that, would change. Right. Me and my group, you know. Yes. But not only us. That means the blacks. And and did you have any uh, European American coworkers or peers at that time? Uh, how did do, no. do you know what the, how they felt or acted, or you didn't really interact with European Americans at that point? No, we didn't. No, not at that time. Okay. So, in 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Tell me how that how that uh, felt, and and how that impacted you and your and your your uh, your group during that time, your peers. Well, well that was a sad time. And you know how, you know how we are. We put, we put the blame in different places, but it really was a sad time because some of the progress that we were making that slowed it up. Right. Did you did you have a mistrust uh, for European Americans at that time? Did you feel like, you know, in general? Or let's just say the, the American government, which we know was run by European Americans, and we know that you know I like to be a little bit more di- um, uh, direct with my language, or I guess uh, focused in with my language, and knowing that all European Americans weren't out there committing hate crimes and oppressing African Americans. Uh, there were actually a lot of European Americans who uh, were t- took part in every part of the civil rights movement. Um, so the European Americans that were in power during that time, the U S government officials, um, do you feel like there was a lot of mistrust? Did you have any mistrust during that time of, of European Americans in power based on what was going on during the late sixties and the early seventies with the assassinations of civil rights leaders like Dr. Martin Luther King, as well as um, the assassination of black Panthers and yeah, a lot of others. Who are you going to say? Megger Evers. Megger Evers. Yes, Megger Evers. And uh, you know, uh, with the Black Panthers and and others, uh, did you have a lot of mistrust? Did you feel like things were going to get worse and go backwards at that time? No, I always thought it would get better. Mm-hmm. But I, but I thought maybe that we had to go through this to get better. We had to go through something. And that's one of the things that we had to go through before we get better. But I thought always, and and then you you have to watch it, Scott. You can't let the things, even though you don't agree, even though things don't go the way you want them to go or think they should go, you just can't get bitter. You can't let it get to you, you know, and make you feel bad. Or make, you don't want to, you can't afford to hate. You don't let it enter, enter your mind. 
just want to, you got to, see, that's where love comes in. You got to love everybody, so regardless of how you're being treated. Not being treated the way you want to be treated or think you should, but that don't come still you don't have a reason to hate. Wow, that takes a lot of strength to love. It does. Even, you, even when you you're being to, mistreated. And it takes, and it, that's right, it takes prayer. It takes prayer. You have to do a lot of prayer. Okay, so so I want to ask you, Mother, so as we transition, we'll we'll skip ahead to the 2000s and 2008 to be specific, uh, when America elected its first non-European uh, American president. And it just so happened to be uh, a mixed uh, ethnicity uh, individual uh, by the name of Barack Hussein Obama, uh, whose mother was um, an American of European descent and whose father was actually uh, an African man from Kenya. So by default in America, you know, when someone has any African-American blood, uh, especially, a, you know, well, at least 50 percent, uh, but there was actually like a one drop rule, um, as I know you're familiar with. Uh, but when you have any African-American when you have any, I'm sorry, not, not even African-American, but any African blood, you were considered uh, African uh, or a descendant of Africa, which Americans call black. Um, so with our first African-American president, uh, Barack Obama, how did that make you feel living through the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s? The first, literally the first Man, the first, what's that, 64 is the act. So the first 44 years of your life, you lived in segregation longer than I am. I'm 37, and you were 44 before you ever lived in in an America where, by law, you were deemed as equal. You were 44 years old before you were ever looked at in the eyes of the law as equal in this country. And then even after 1964, you know, unfortunately, it took many more years for hearts and minds to change. And then we arrive and, and, you know, if I'm being honest, we both know that there's still some hearts and minds that need to change uh, in America and especially within our systems. Um, You know, we need systemic changes because unfortunately, a lot of the uh, the uh, discrimination and oppression that still takes place in America is done systemically yes, yes. more so than um, individual on an individual level. Uh, the individual forms of discrimination aren't socially acceptable anymore. However, uh, the systemic forms of discrimination and oppression are still alive and well because the systems haven't been changed uh, in a lot of ways since the begin since they were set up uh, to be you know um, white white dominant. I guess that's the best way to say it. So with that being said, we arrive in 2008, and now, you know, in 2008, you witness the election of an African-American president at the age of 88. How did you feel? Did you ever think that you would live to see that? No, I I did not think I would live to see that. Uh, No. But it it was a, a, a an exciting time, but I didn't think, and I I never I just didn't think I would live to see that. But you know what? There's no secret what God can do, 
and and I I I I don't think a lot of people think that God did it, but I do because the things that He has been through since He's been there, and how He was treated, and and a white, even a Democrat, neither Republican, has been treated ever treated the way that Obama. President Obama has been treated. They just did everything they could. But you see how he still stands. And I think that's an ex- that's an exciting time. But to see how, when, even when he was speaking, this, I don't know if you watched that or not, for someone to say, you lie, it's cut him up right in his speech. Yes, I saw that. Things, all of the other things that he received. But it, they, they don't say, they say everything, but they don't say because he was black. But that's the reason they did treat him the way the way they treated him, because he was black. Because they never treated a white, I don't care what, they never treated a white like that. The way they have treated him. But look how he stands through all of that. Yes, he shows a lot of poise and a lot of class. They were going to make him a a one-time president. Look how he went on back back in every second time with so many uh, votes. Right. Man couldn't do that. So does that make you feel like America has gotten a lot better, Mother? Because they were, um, you know, they did vote in an an African-American uh, president two times. Do you feel like the hearts and minds of a large part of European Americans have changed? Well, I think I believe that. Yes, I do. And does it? Do you think that seeing the symbolism of seeing an African American uh, family with beautiful uh, children and a beautiful African American wife in the White House for the last eight years? What do you think that does for the mindset of all the African Americans in this country? I, I think I think that they see it in a different time now that they've seen all of this and how everything has been so nice and and how how this uh, president and his family had the courage they had courage to stand up and not waver. They weren't afraid. And they give some of the, the younger blacks encouragement. I think that. Awesome. Well, Mother, that was my final question. And what I'd like to ask you is um, to just share a final message uh, with our listeners. You know, we have a very large listener base of all ethnicities. Uh, African-Americans, European-Americans, Asian-Americans, um, you know, that listen to this podcast and uh, as well as, um, you know, Hispanic-Americans and literally all ethnicities uh, listen to this podcast. What would be your message based on everything that you've lived through? What do you want me and my children and all of these listeners to know going forward, what, what do you want us to know uh, and what would you like us to think about as we continue to work towards making America 
a place where everyone feels like they're free and everyone feels like they're welcome and loved by all. Well, God, uh, I would like to, my, my closing message would be, you know, when we think about it and how we got this for and how things are, that we're moving on, things are getting better, look where we started from. We started from where they actually talked from slavery and where we are today. One of the things I would say is that the Lord has brought us safe thus far. He did it. I don't know. That's the way I say he brought us, and it's through prayer, because prayer changes things. And the things that we want, things that we need, ask, ask the Lord for them, and he'll grant it. And I think about, I didn't think this way when I was young, but as I grew older, and when I look and see the trees and the beautiful green grass that we serve an awesome God because only God could do these things. And and I, and I like to say to the young people, I say to my, my children and my grandchildren, my great-grand, put God first because he know your needs. He know how you feel, and there is nothing he can't heal. Thank you. Thank you, Mother. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, I know that you were concerned that, um, you know, you might not be able to uh, think through the questions um, in, in, in the quick, quick enough, and I just want you to know you did great. I know that our listeners yes. will appreciate the time you spent and the perspective that you shared. And I love you so much. And I, I really appreciate you. And I thank God for you every day that you are still able to share this wisdom with us. And now this is something that will live on and our, your grandchildren, your great, great grandchildren will be able to hear. And I just appreciate you for doing this. Thank you so much. And I, and I I would like to say to the ones of the people that you work with, you know, I think that they're doing an awesome job. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm sure that, um, you know, that that message will go towards everyone in the Race Haven community. Uh, My my, my mother listened uh, to some of the podcasts, to John, who's a co-host with me on uh, most of my shows. Um, You know, that message is for him as well. So thank you to everyone in the Race Haven community uh, from Mother and she appreciates you just as much as I do. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to sign off, Mother, and I'm going to close out the show now, but I'm going to let you go. And, again, thank you so much, and we'll talk soon, okay? Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> so that's our time for today, listeners. Again, thank you so much. Um, I apologize for the, the sound quality uh, of the show in terms of some of the static 
and some of the, uh, the, the low tone, but I had to get my uh, grandmother on through a three-way call into the, uh, the guest bridge, and therefore the sound quality wasn't as great. Uh, however, I think that it's invaluable uh, to get her perspective, and I hope you guys appreciated it and you listened all the way to the end, and if you did, thank you so much. Um, I hope it was meaningful. I hope it provided some perspective for you. Um, and it was her honest, you know, thoughts, experiences based on the life that she lived. And, you know, that's what it's all about. So with that being said, please be sure to subscribe to the Race Haven podcast on, on the iPhone podcast app or Stitcher radio app for Android so that you never miss the dialogue. And if you love this show, please leave us a review on the podcast and Stitcher apps. Uh, please, please, please. We need reviews. Uh, this will help the show gain more visibility and listeners. Uh, and we want to hear from you. You can always email us your perspectives at solutions at racehavenpodcast.com. That's solutions at racehavenpodcast.com. Please visit the Racehaven Podcast Facebook page or racehavenpodcast.com to leave comments and questions about today's show. You can also join our online community by joining the Race Haven Community Dialogue Facebook group. If today's episode resonated with you, please share the podcast link on social media and with your friends through text message, email, phone call, verbally, face-to-face. However you share information, please tell them about Race Haven. A Race Haven is a safe place for people from diverse ethnic, religious, cultural, and political backgrounds to bring their race-based perspectives, questions, assumptions, frustrations, and experiences to engage in thoughtful, honest dialogue in an effort to transcend race and unify America. Remember, we are all smarter when we think together. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Race Haven Radio Show and Podcast. Be sure to visit www.racehavenblog.com to comment and learn more.